Welcome to the Want to Learn podcast. I'm your host, Francis Taipan. In this episode, I talked to Christopher Comer, who is the Director of Conservation at Safari Club International. I asked him whether hunters are responsible for the decline of Africa's wildlife. And in fact, is Africa's wildlife declining everywhere? Or are there some improvements, some bright spots? Is he pessimistic or optimistic about the future? I introduced the term that I'm going to be using in my book, The Hidden Europe, uh, sorry, The Unseen Africa, called rural sprawl. And what impact does it have on wildlife? Is poaching getting better or worse? What are some common myths that people have about hunting? Why is West Africa so far less popular with safaris than East and Southern Africa? And what can we do if we were dictators? to be able to change the wildlife population and prove it, augment it in Africa. Does making a species endangered and threatened help or hurt that species? And fundamentally, is hunting moral? Welcome to the Want to Learn podcast. I'm here in Reno, Nevada, and I'm attending the SCI conference, which is the Safari Club International Conference, and I'm here with Christopher Comer, who is the Director of Conservation of the Foundation of SCI, the Safari Club International. So welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. A lot of people hear Safari Club International. They've never even heard of, you know, what is Safari Club. They imagine it's just photographic safari. But is it is it fair to say that most of SCI is focused on hunting more than just photographic safari? It's a little bit of both, but probably 80% hunting. Yes, it's really a hunter-focused organization. They're, the motto of Safari Club International is first for hunters, so they are concerned with hunter uh, rights and, and hunting opportunities uh, worldwide. Okay. What I want to dive into, since you are pretty much the head of conservation issues, I wanted to tackle some perhaps misunderstandings, misconceptions that a lot of the public may have regarding hunting. What do you hear then? You say, oh, I hate when people say that, and it's just such a, it's such a falsehood. I, what I don't like to hear um, is that you hear a lot, particularly when you're talking about um, Africa and some, some uh, places overseas, you hear things like, why are we hunting species that are endangered? Is it, hunting is responsible for these species being endangered or rare or, or declining. And that's something that, if you look historically, was, was true for some species. But now, particularly in North America, but really anywhere in the world in Africa as well, Hunting is regulated very closely. Populations are monitored very, very tightly, such that hunting really does not pose a threat. Legal regulated hunting does not pose a threat to any rare species. Uh, the way that, that that we manage species now, that's no longer true. And it, it, it I, don't, I don't know if it irritates or it makes me sad or something. You know, it, it's unfortunate I think that people have this view that hunting is responsible for making species rare because that is not the case anymore. So what is responsible for this? Sure. That. Uh, I mean, the, the primary thing... Because, I mean, it is a fact that the elephant has declined dramatically in the last 30, 40, 50 right. years, and a lot of other species have declined, especially in Africa, these, these big game species. So people just assume that it's got to be the hunters. Right, it, yeah, particularly right now for elephants, and actually elephants are doing quite well in some parts of their range, but overall the numbers probably are down. Um, but for elephants in particular, a lot of it is illegal harvest. And I, that's another th that does irritate me when people equate illegal harvest poaching, right, with hunting. And those are two very different things. Nobody who is a hunter is in favor of illegal harvest of animals uh, and poaching of animals. So poaching is a big problem for, for elephants, but that's not hunting. Um, if you think sort of a broader perspective worldwide, 
you know, things like habitat loss, habitat change, uh, invasive species, uh, things like that are really responsible for global biodiversity declines and, and declines of various species. So, you know, humans are demanding more and more resources in terms of, of all kinds of things, food and energy and everything else, and, and that, that often comes at the expense of wild habitats, which then those habitats can no longer support the species they used to. And that's really where the challenge is. So would you say that just a growing amount of humans that are encroaching into wildlife areas is, is primarily what the cause is, that the habitat loss? That's, that's right. So they're not purposely necessarily hunting these creatures, right. whether legally or illegally, to, to extinction or at least in that direction. They're just, they just want to live, and therefore they want cropland. They want to farm, and so therefore they got to, like, plow down their territory. And if they want to raise chickens, and if the lion eats the chickens, that's a problem. Well, yeah, that gets into a, a new area, which is human-wildlife conflict. And that, that is an issue certainly in Africa and, and in North America and everywhere else. But, yeah, it's really it's just human demand for resources comes at the expense of wildlife habitat. I, I don't know if this is true, but I, I think it's true, and I, I read a, it makes sense to me, but maybe I, I don't know if you know this but that i read a statistic that said that united states every single state used to have wolf wild wolf in them at you know this is like 300 years ago four or 500 years ago basically when the europeans first showed up and that now it's pretty much just wyoming and maybe montana i guess but uh where they were reintroduced and of course alaska still have the wolf but um i th- I don't know if that's true, but let's assume that it is, whether it's 49 states sure. or whatever. But the bottom line, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lo- the majority. And that was because we expanded, I assume. I mean, it's not like we were, I mean, people just didn't like wolf right. running around and eating their goats and, and, and attacking their cows. I, th- I think that's right. So there was definitely a targeted program back in the 1800s and into the, even into the 1900s to eliminate predators because mostly they're threats to agricultural livestock, right? So sheep and goats and cows and other things like that. Um, actually, I would say that the wolf situation is better than what you described. There's, there are expanding wolf populations in the states you mentioned, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, um, but it, also in Minnesota, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin have actually have a lot of wolves. Okay. Um, and, and, but they're not hunted yet. There are some states where they can manage wolves. So there is, there is wolf hunting in a few states, Idaho, uh, some of those states out west do have uh, wolf hunting again tightly regulated right they know how many wolves they have and they're the state agencies that are responsible for those populations um, design their har- harvest quote hunting numbers how many wolves can be taken to be a number that can be sustainable by that population so it's not going to threaten that population they have very good information about it so what i sometimes wonder is that we have this notion that we were able to rid our land of wolves and by the way europe was covered in forest Europe was covered with wolves also. If you read, I read a lot of literature from the 18th century, and they talk about the wolves all over the wilds and that kind of stuff. And, of course, that's all been decimated. But when Africans do it in the 21st century, like, no, no, no. There there is a certain (laughs) amount of uh, hypocrisy, some would say, in that, yes. We've kind of... We've done this to our our animals in in North America and in Europe, and now we're telling Africa, well, you can't do that. I agree. And And people... The people who manage wildlife in Africa, they they see that too. Like, well, what are you? Why are you telling us this? We and and that's one of the fundamental things I've gotten out of now that I've spent some time with uh, people from the countries in Africa that have a lot of the species that we're worried about. That they they feel like they should be able to manage their wildlife resources the way they know how. And they I think they sometimes don't understand why 
people from the United States or from Europe or want to tell them how to manage their own resources, you know. Well, I think also Africans were shocked when Cecil the Lion in Zimbabwe was shot a couple of years ago and killed uh, illegally, I guess. And he, and and there was an uproar in the Western media about this, and the Africans were saying, "Wait a second, you guys get all upset about this lion getting killed. What about us starving or us in a war zone or whatever? We're we're dying of diseases or malaria or whatever." <laughs> and they're like, "And you're worried about one lion?" Yeah, this is the thing. This is what makes you. Pay attention to what's going on. Everything can get all up in arms when, when there's so many other issues that are more critical to them, I think, than that. Right. Okay, so to try to convince – I'm going to play devil's advocate and try to convince you that, no, you know, hunting is bad. I mean, they, they might – people might wonder that, you know, why – you know, if you're taking an, uh, any creature out of the population – that is decreasing the population by its nature. I mean, you, you shoot 10 buffalo, that's 10 fewer buffalo mm-hmm. out of the population. Why should people be doing this? Why not have as many buffalo as we can possibly have? Sure. There's a, I mean, there's a whole science associated with wildlife management where we can monitor populations, and, and years and years of, of data have shown, and it shouldn't be any surprise, right, that any population that's doing well in good habitat is going to produce more eventually is going to reach a point where they're, we call it carrying capacity, right, where this is the, the maximum number of animals this area can support, but they still keep reproducing. And it, in cases like that, certainly you can justify that there are, um, surplus is kind of a harsh word to use for wildlife, but there, there are more animals that are produced by that population than can be supported by the habitat. Therefore, it makes sense that we can harvest a certain number of those animals without causing any kind of long-term um, population decline. And it's important when we talk about, when wildlife managers talk about animals, when we talk about wildlife, we talk about populations, right? So we talk about the idea of the overall number of animals that are present in this area, right? And we're concerned with making sure that that number stays the same or, you know, stable or maybe increasing depending on what our goals are. You know, and we don't think about it in terms of individual animals. That's not the way we think about managing wildlife, which, but some, you know, it's easy for for folks to look at it that way. And certainly, you know, in an animal that is hunted is removed from that population, there's no doubt. But the population as a whole, if we monitor it and see that that number stays the same, that means that we're, we're harvesting an appropriate number that's going to be okay for that population. What is the thing that you would do if you were a dictator of the world and you, Christopher, anything you say goes and you were in charge of the continent of Africa and your job would be to actually increase the number of of major mammals that are running around what would you do i mean the, the first the biggest thing to me i think is to give those countries in africa the uh, power and the ability to manage the animals the way that they know how they're the ones that are on the ground that are familiar with their populations and they and they of course care about the wildlife in their country and they want to do the right thing uh, by their own wildlife population so i think and that's one of the fundamental tenets of us as Far Club International Foundation is that we want to work with those governments to help them to, to give them the resources needed to manage the wildlife the way they can. But hold on. I mean, there's people, not every, all Africans agree with each other. There's, an, you know, the government might say we want to preserve this or a safari, a photographic safari guy says I want to preserve this. But the villager who's got seven children to feed and he's got his crops being eaten he doesn't want to protect these damn creatures that are eating his livestock and his uh, corn. There's probably some truth to that. I, I think, I mean, I, 
that's a hard one. I would say that the, the, there's there's definitely some Africans who are not happy about right. these creatures. I mean, there's I've known Africans who've been killed yep. by elephants right. because maybe they're trying to shoo the elephant away from their crops, and in the process, the elephant gets pissed off and just tramples on them. It's and a huge animal, right? Yeah. Right. And I think so. Yeah, we have to respect that the view that yes, that 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 they're the folks who are living with these animals on a daily basis, and and it's perfectly rational for them to want to manage them in a way such that they minimize this damage and the impact on the human population. And I think we could, very few of them want them to go away entirely. They don't want the animals to go away, but they do want to have the ability when there are issues with conflict that they can manage those issues and help their people not be impacted so much. And I think hunting is a, is a good way to do that. And certainly that's the way a lot of folks in the governments there feel like that's a good way to manage this conflicts is through hunting rather than having that animal Perhaps if there's an elephant's causing problem, rather than have that animal killed by the government folks to keep it from from continuing to cause damage, it makes much more sense to derive some income and some resources from that by having perhaps somebody uh, come in and hunt that animal as part of an you know an organized hunt, a regulated hunt, rather than just having the animal killed for and getting nothing from it. All right, and and so what about the other types of species that are maybe like the antelopes? Those are not not many people worry about them, I imagine. That's right. You don't get nearly as much attention for for the many, uh, and, you know, the impalas and the and the uh, dikers and things like that. There's not as much concern about that. Right. But, but I mean, those those are also important from a from a, a biodiversity perspective, and certainly the those governments are concerned about having healthy populations of all those animals as well. Right. So, what other me- measures would you take in order to help? improve the situation in Africa vis-a-vis wildlife. What is Africa doing wrong that you would like to correct? You say, I would like to turn it over to the African people uh, and and they would like to manage it, but is that necessarily, are they going to be doing a great job? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I can't say for sure either. I do feel like they're more likely to make the rational decisions based on the fact that, that they're there on the ground rather than people that are, you know, thousands of miles away making decisions for them for their land. That seems like that's bound to to result in poor decision making than the folks that are there on the ground. Fair enough. But at the same time, I wonder if this is a solvable problem because right now the trajectory without solving the human population growth is what I'm suggesting because I remember reading once that, for example, elephants adore the exact same habitat that human beings adore. In other words, places that has a lot of water, a lot of vegetation, um, temperate climates. And, you know, basically everywhere an elephant wants to live is where a human would like to live, too. And so that just puts us in direct conflict versus like some snow leopard. (laughs) Probably less so. Uh, I think that the the nice thing or a good thing about... um, the international, you know, sustainable use or conservation hunting, as we like to call it, is that it does give some economic value to these species. So there's more of an incentive, not only for the governments, but also for local folks. If there's an economic value attached to that animal um, via that animal being hunted, or it, it applies in some places to photo safaris as well, but if there's economic value attached to those animals, then that gives them an incentive to to keep the animals around, right, and because they can derive some benefit from them. And also, and I've, I mean, I've talked to people 
who are directly involved with this, it also, you know, if you th- know that that elephant has, is going to potentially provide some value to your, in, to your community, then you're likely to be more tolerant of the activities that an elephant may engage in. So I think that's going to help in the long term having those. And that's obviously true. A lot of the Maasai have cooperated in the Serengeti, for example, because the lines, you know, they bring them indirect or direct revenue in many cases. So therefore, somebody who's listening to this, who's a vegan, will say to you, great, I agree with you. Why don't you make everything a photographic safari? Why don't, why, let's just nationalize all the parks. Just expand the parks. Take away these game reserves where you're shooting things and just transform every little thing into a photographic safari. What's wrong with that, Dr. Comer? <laughs> it's just not a, not a practical solution. There's actually been some really excellent um, scientific work done by um, some folks out of South Africa and some other countries where they actually did an economic analysis of that. And the, and the fact is that photo tourism is viable and and works really well in certain areas so in Gorongoro crater in Tanzania where it's a relatively uh, defined area with very um, highly visible and highly abundant wildlife populations that people want to see so it works very well there Um, but many parts of Africa don't have the infrastructure or frankly the wildlife density or um, visibility that is uh, conducive to people paying to go do photo safaris so I think and, and most folks uh, involved will agree that there are some areas where the the photographic not you know photographic safaris are uh, a very good mechanism, but that's a that's a relatively small percentage of the available land. And we'd like to have wildlife present on lands that aren't necessarily photo you know suitable for photo tourism. And and hunting is is economically viable at much lower wildlife densities and with different mix of species than you than you need photo tourism for. So they should both work together. We should have both of them. What about poaching? uh, Is your visibility, I get mixed messages. It seems like poaching on the one hand seems to be getting better. Other seems like sometimes I read news reports. It seems like it's getting worse. Since you study this issue a little bit more, do do you have any sense of if if in Africa specifically poaching situations getting better or worse or is it just it's a mixed bag? It's a mixed bag. It depends where you are. I know in some regions, uh, poaching, particularly of rhinoceros, is is maybe not getting worse, but it's very bad. <laughs> it's bad, and it's not getting a whole lot better. There are places where it, where it is, but uh, uh, certain regions, it's it's still bad. I think elephant poaching seems to be um, maybe a little bit more stable and not as much of a concern because a lot of elephant populations are doing very well. But rhino is a, is a much less abundant species, and, and poaching is still at a level where it can significantly impact the population of rhinoceros for sure so so rhino poaching is still a big problem so dictator of africa what would you do to solve this problem dr comer i would if i could just make poaching stop i would do that for sure how do you do that yeah that's there is no there's no easy solution to it i don't think to make poaching stop i mean certainly but you're the dictator of africa <laughs> you should be able to decide come on we're looking for you to decisions yeah it's <laughs> i just don't think there's a the problem is that that there's, you know, it's an international illegal market in these uh, rhino horns that even you know, that there's very difficult. It's very difficult to control that market. The demand is so high. The, the monetary value associated with rhino horn, for example, is so high that that there's in so much incentive for for people to engage in these poaching activities. So, you know, if you I guess in an ideal world, you could make the economic situation such either either remove the economic value of rhino horn, for example. Right. So there is no 
market for it. That would be great. I don't know how you would do that. Well, I mean, one idea could be just an education campaign. I mean, just sure. especially in China where most of the demand is, and just teach Chinese that, you know, the rhino horn doesn't have magical properties. That would that would be great. If we could magically make that the case, that would be that would be great. And certainly people are trying to do that right now, but it's it's a hard one. And then, you know, the other half of it is- We could probably come up with a good solution if we just consumed rhino horn right now in this conversation. <laughs> right, right, that would, that would probably <laughs> convince us that it, wasn't, that it doesn't have any magical powers. That's probably true. <laughs> but, okay, so, but I, I'm still looking for solutions. And, and I think, and I, I just want to see how does hunting fit into this mix? You're kind of implying that basically hunting allows people to bring in revenue. And therefore, people will then protect the area, and and you're suggesting that photographic safaris only get you so far, and it depends on the topography and all sorts of other variables of vegetation density that can impact the viewing experience for these fleets of cars that chase after these animals. Right. Um, so, uh, but I, I want to see how does you know hunting improve is it just simply the fact that that they're generating more money um therefore people are really going to benefit uh, is it going to build schools is it going to build hospitals uh it and it still doesn't seem to solve the human density problem it should in the conservation process i wonder should we take money to help urbanize the population you know in other words right africa in the last century was probably 80% rural and we need to shift to 80% urban and that seems like it would really help things? Well, that's happening anyway in a lot of parts of Africa. So sure. More, more urbanized as we talk. That's a, that's a very hard policy thing. I'm sure there's all kinds of, sort of negative things that would come from that. From a wildlife perspective, if we, you know, that would probably, uh, it would certainly open up more space for wildlife if we were able to do that. But I'm sure that there, from a sociological perspective, I'm sure that would have some some impacts that maybe people wouldn't be so excited about. Well, I mean, it's definitely, like you say, it's happening. But what I observed in so much of Africa, I've been to every country, and I see that a lot of the places, what I call rural sprawl. Mm. <laughs> we have suburban sprawl and that kind of stuff. They don't really have suburbs in Africa. They just have, like, villages that just go after villages, after villages, after villages. And they're just really small. They're not suburban. They don't have that density to have a suburb. They're definitely not a city. It's rural. It's a village, and yet there's just one after another, after another, after another, after another, and, and just like, and, and so therefore, wildlife can't really live in that kind of rural sprawl. That's that's true. That's a difficult one. I, I haven't spent as much time in Africa as you have, but yes, I observed some of what you're talking about. That that's a hard one for wildlife to deal with, for sure. And somehow, if we can improve the density of these communities, then that could free up some more land um, and therefore have fewer animal human conflicts and we have we have similar issues here in the United States with you know sure. some of our cities with what I would characterize almost as rural sprawl so low density um, urbanization can have impacts on North American species well and I think we're going to see more of that as as some of our predator populations so some of the species that that like wolves for example that years ago we kind of uh, got rid of as they keep expanding they're going to start getting into these what you characterize rural sprawl areas, and we're going to have some some issues too. We already do in some areas in North America too. What do you think is another myth that people have about hunting? Uh, one one that I that I 
talk about quite a bit is is there's a, a view that hunting is equivalent to um, killing, right? And that that hunt- well, it is killing. It is, it is, but that is not the entirety of what hunting is. It's an overall experience um, of which the killing of an animal is one part. It's a unpack that. Um, so, and I, so I'm speaking more from my personal experience. That's something that, that's hard to define for other than for yourself. But certainly, the experience of being out in um, in the woods and in nature, and the idea of when when one is engaged in hunting, I think you're more aware of what's of the the, communi- the animal community around you. You're paying attention. You tend to go places you might not go if you weren't engaged in hunting, um, and so it gives you a different experience of. Uh, wild communities than you get any other way for me anyway and so there's a and, and also i think hunters in general as a group and this has been shown this isn't this is not in pain this is has been shown in surveys hunters tend to be more uh knowledgeable and more concerned with wildlife and wildlife conservation than the general population so it does that the practice does tend to make one more informed and more um, concerned with wildlife conservation uh, how optimistic are you for the future of wildlife in Africa? Because looking at the statistics, it's pretty bleak. It's tough. I mean, I think there are certainly some uh, some locations and some species one can look at that that are um, give one optimism. So even like lions, for example, lion populations probably, if you look continent wide, are declining. But in some countries, you know, Tanzania, some of these countries, they're actually stable to, you know, they have a pretty good handle on what's going on with their lion population, and there's a lot of interest in helping lions. So I think as we um, move forward, uh, I think we'll see improvements in some species. Uh, and even even elephants, I think, are doing well, like I said, in some parts of the, the continent. So there's some, some spots to find optimism, I think, for African wildlife. Do you have any idea why West Africa is, like, never really involved in any of this stuff? That's a, that's a difficult one. We, in fact, as part of our... Um, our efforts in Africa, we've been trying to engage some of the West African countries in, in our activities, and we're getting some positive response. I don't, I don't know enough about the history of why that was. I, you know, there are certainly um, many of them have um, much higher human population density than, say, Southern Africa does, um, so I think that makes it more difficult. But, but uh, I don't know why that has been. There, there's certainly less active um, hunting in most of West Africa, which may give less incentives to engage in some of the... Um, the sustainable use conservation stuff that we've been talking about. Um, you, you, I don't understand. Uh, which in other words, that there's, there's, you're saying that there's not much hunting going on in West Africa. That's right. Not certainly not at the scale that we have in in some of the East and Southern African countries. And why is that? Uh, that because of their their. Well, there's, I'm sure there's many reasons. I don't know all of them. I think their wildlife populations are generally not as abundant, so it's more difficult. Um, they're also they tend to be much denser um you know den- more densely forested uh communities so there is um so any kind of wildlife related tourism is more difficult when it's uh, highly dense habitats you also have um uh i think more uh resource development in a lot of those countries you know so like uh, mining and oil and gas and stuff like that other um other competing uh, land uses other than wildlife, right? So, so um, one of the in in parts of Southern Africa, Namibia, and countries like that, the most economically viable use of much of the land is to is 
to produce wildlife. You know, and that's that's great from a from a perspective of conserving wildlife. But that may not be the case in some parts of West Africa where they have more, you know, like I said, more natural. Um, sorry, more more um, extractive resource uh, development there. The hunting industry in America is it growing? Is it flat? Is it going down? And how is it compared to Africa, for example? Certainly hunter numbers. So there's been a long, you, you can find these from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and other sources. Hunter numbers in North America have been declining uh, for probably since the late 1980s overall. There's been a few blips, but overall hunter numbers are down. So, and therefore hunting activity has been down. Um, and Do you know why that is? <laughs> there's a, uh, if I knew that, I, I would... Uh, retire <laughs> right right exactly i could retire uh, there's a lot of theories out there and i'm sure it's a mix of factors so it's it's things like competing uses you know they're competing activities so you know the classic thing is now now the kids are spending their time on on social media or on the, on uh, electronic media rather than being outside i'm sure that's a part of it um lo- less access to places to engage in hunting is certainly a factor um so they've made less places hunting illegal in more places. Um, part of that, I was thinking more that that there is less private land typically available. So 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 people are less willing to have hunters on their land, things like that. So it, it's more a private land thing. There's there's still a lot of public land out west, but in in other parts of the United States. But but I think there's less overall access for you know the average hunter to be able to access land. So do you foresee that trend continuing, that the just be a long-term, slow, slow decline? I hope not. Okay. I, I, I don't, I, I couldn't say. I think that it, it's kind of stabilized, so it's more uh, flat. There's certainly a lot of efforts out there at, at state and federal and non-governmental organizations to, um, to encourage more hunting activity, and hopefully some of those will be successful going mm-hmm. forward. By the way, as an aside, uh, one of the things that irks me the most is, like, I don't really have a big problem with a vegan or a vegetarian complaining about hunting because at least at least I kind of understand their perspective. But most people who complain about hunting also eat fish and meat and chicken and all this other stuff. And I'm like, I would never hunt. Well, I'm like, dude, you hunt every day. <laughs> you're just paying somebody else to do the hunting for you. You know, you're killing some animal in some factory farm who lives a miserable existence usually the entire life and that's actually probably more cruel than any wild animal that's shot and then eaten yeah, there is yes i agree that there is a pretty obvious hypocrisy there to to say i would never kill an animal while you're eating a, a hamburger or a steak <laughs> right yeah i i agree with that and, I, and one of the things i would say one of the things that that per, again we mentioned things that that are special about about hunting i certainly derive a lot of value from uh from harvesting my own uh, protein, right? So I know where that where that animal uh, came from. I know how it was harvested because I did it myself, and I participated in that process rather than, like you said, paying somebody else at a remote location to, to do that process for me. I feel that's a more sort of honest um, uh, consumption of that animal. Right. How would you convince the vegan out there or the vegetarian that hunting is actually – a productive or a good activity it's actually helps overall the ecosystem what would you if they're sitting down in front of them what would you tell them uh, to me what resonates best is, is in north america we can certainly look at um historically it's very clear that the first efforts towards um sort of widespread conservation of wildlife in in north america were driven by hunters and anglers and that that's been been shown many times uh 
as we as we advance sort of into the you know the 2000s and it's a good thing i think that the non-hunting uh, public is becoming more involved in conservation, and that's that's all to the good. But if you look historically, the the people who have who have been the most actively engaged in conservation, and who have contributed the most resources toward it, have traditionally been the consumptive users. And I, I know that's not necessarily convincing for for all those folks, but to me that should be something that should resonate. That that yes, there's abundant evidence that if tightly regulated and and done correctly hunting can contribute toward long-term conservation of species. And that should resonate, I think. You were citing a statistic earlier in one of your presentations that $70 million SCI, your foundation that you work for, has spent in the last, what, 10 years? That was since 2000, so it's you know, about 20 years, yeah. And so, and this $70 million that you guys have spent, where has it gone? It's gone all over the world. Right, it's gone all over the world. We've spent in North America, Africa, Central Asia. It's gone to... Um, both to research projects and to man on the ground management. You know, we talked about the wood bison restoration as an example of a more that's not even a research project. That's we were helping to support restoration of these animals. So it's gone to all kinds of projects like that. I, more than I could possibly name. But yeah, it's all 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 different kinds of projects. Okay. And what do you see as the future of Africa with regard to hunting? Do you are you kind of bullish? You talked a little bit about America and its future and and. Y you fear that it might start to continue its long-term seminal decline, but what about Africa with their increasing population? The population is decreasing the rate of population growth, but the overall, in other words, they used to have five, six children each. Now it's down to three or four, but it's still growing overall, the human population. So how do you reconcile that? What, how does, doesn't that, it seems like that's a cloudy future for the wildlife. I agree. It is, it's a, it is, um, Worrisome, kind of where that's going to go, and I think uh, they they have a, a tough job ahead of them to 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 keep their biodiversity and and their um, their wildlife um, the way it is, and it may hopefully to grow some. And so I think you're right there. It is a, it's going to be a challenge, um, and I think that I hope that uh, you know North America and Europe can help them to do that rather than standing in the way of their doing that. Do you, speaking about helping and standing in the way, how do you feel, this is maybe something that's not very intuitive to people, may sound like a strange question, but do you think that declaring a species endangered or threatened helps or hurts the situation? I think over there, it's pretty clear that that um, does more harm than good in a lot of cases. So a lot of people, I, that's what I thought you were going to say. So a lot of people say, what? You know, turn their head like, that's what? Counterintuitive. <laughs> it's counterintuitive. So uh, help people explain that to them. Uh, again, it's it's related to the economic value of the species. So if we, so for example, in the United States put certain species, certain African species on the endangered species list, then it severely limits uh, their ability to, uh, for people to import those animals into the United States, which uh, creates real barriers to um, their sustainable use uh, conservation model. Because if, if people can't import their animals, then they have less incentive to go over there and engage in, in hunting activities. And, and therefore, it's more difficult for um, the sustainable use industry to, to maintain itself. Okay, so let's look at a specific example. I think the lion and the leopard, sorry, the lion and the elephant, you cannot import in 
the trophy into the United States. I don't know if that's still true in 2019, but I think it is. It, that is true for elephants. Um, there have not, there's not been any importation of elephants. There is some limited import of lion um, for only for hunting trophies. So there's no uh, no commercial trade, of course, um, to the United States. But you can. It, but right now, um, so, so sorry. But how? Okay, let's just focus on the elephant. How is that elephant uh, ban? on elephant importation of their tusks or whatever, or their heads and mm -hmm. just their whatever. Um, how is that hurting them? And, and, and why is that ban and calling it an endangered species? I don't know, actually, elephants are not endangered officially, but right. threatened, I guess. The, yeah, the ban, uh, so, I mean, like, like I said, if, uh, you know, part of the, what people, when people go to, to hunt elephants, they want to be able to bring uh, trophies back, essentially, in as a you know a memento of the the hunt and all that kind of stuff uh, and if that is impossible as it has been recently um, then those folks are less likely to, to do it which means that they're not putting their resources into these um, local communities and these these uh, uh, countries to to do the elephant hunting and, and that hurts their their model for conservation that they have and as a result, they'll just hunt the elephant and shoot it, and nobody gets any money. Right. So, yeah, in fact, I had a conversation with, with some, uh, some folks from Africa today about that, that, that if um, the import ban continues, eventually their, their elephant populations are going to go to the point that they have to, to cull those populations internally, uh, which means that, that nobody's – I mean, they, those elephants are still used locally for the meat and stuff, but they're not you – know, that's not a solution that's optimal for anyone. And now this is another people, another myth that people just assume that things that you don't see at the supermarket are not eaten. In other words, they just assume that who the hell eats a hippo or an elephant or a lion for that matter, but their meat actually can be eaten. And I just talked to some guy today. He told me that hippo meat is quite delicious. Yeah, I've never had hippo meat, but yeah. He said he mixed it with meat and makes a sausage out of hippo meat and regular, uh, regular like cow meat, I guess. And he mixes it together. And he makes hippo sausage effectively. And he says, wow, it tastes great. Um, so a lot of people just assume that they just it's just a head that's preserved, it's a trophy, and that's it, but actually the whole body is used. That's absolutely correct. Uh, almost, almost all uh, African hunting operations have a, a system whereby, you know, if, when someone comes and takes an animal, they, the, the hunter will typically take, like you said, the, the horns or the skull or maybe, the, maybe the, 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 the hide, but that meat will be usually distributed to local communities right around there. So not only do they get some economic benefit from, the, um, from the, the hunter paying to engage in that hunt, but that meat is they benefit from having the meat that come from these animals, and so they'll distribute it. I've seen it, seen them do it though. They'll, they'll take it from the camp. Once they process the animal, they'll take the meat to the local village, and you know they have a different way of distributing it, but they'll almost always distribute it to the local people right around that area. And another thing is that people will not just hunt willy-nilly ever any species that's just running out there. They actually say, okay, we're going to be targeting an old man, an old male, correct? That's, that's absolutely right. Yep. So it's very much very controlled. And in fact, in, in uh, Africa, you, you have to have a, uh, a professional hunter. The, the, the hunter has to have a, a professional hunter, a licensed professional hunter, with the person when they're hunting. And basically, it's the professional hunter who makes the call of which animal is going to be taken. And they know exactly what, again, what species, what age, sex. and what sex that they're, that they're going to take on that hunt. So it's very tightly controlled. Right. And so as a result, if this is a lion that's past his prime, he's no longer reproduc reproducing, he's been kicked out of 
the pride and he's just kind of a loner out there. He's got probably maybe a expect life expectancy of a year or two left. If you can get $100,000 for his life, it's better than him just dying of old age and getting nothing. Um, or, of course, worse, a poacher shooting him or just a, a local villager shooting him because he's tired of seeing the lion irritate his crops and his other stuff. So, um, and, and that's $100,000 that, that gets distributed throughout the world. I mean, some of it stays in the United States because, let's say, assuming the hunter came from the United States and, 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 and uh, is, is a U.S. company that helped organize the, the hunt. But a lot of it actually does stay in Africa because the government charges fees and then the local populations demand their cut. And so there's a lot of benefit that gets thrown around from that $100,000. Right. In some parts of Africa, a lot of the, the hunting operations are run by local communities. It's a community-based um, uh, conservation hunting operation. So they're not even, it's not even a, a, a company per se. It's the local community has the right to, to manage their resources how they want to. And so that, that money, most of it may come directly to that local community. There's great examples of that in Man Namibia. Uh, and Zimbabwe and some other countries of this community-based model, which is really, I think, something that, that most people should be able to get behind is, is giving that, their local communities that, that ability to manage their, their wildlife. And I do know for a fact also in Tanzania they also do that. I mean, they, there's a specific, I think it's like $15,000 you have to give to the community every season um, in order to have the right to hunt. There's like a concession fee that the community right. gets itself, and they can use that money to build a school, improve their roads, or yeah. do whatever other infrastructure, or build a well. Exactly right. So yeah, so that it's a concession system, like you said, where they they uh, those are typically auctioned off. I think the, the the concessions are, and again, that money comes back into that local community. Right. And so okay, but now let me again play devil's advocate. Is that e uh, so? Uh, there's a certain price that this older male, because that's usually what they usually are, that that, that are targeted, uh, has and can contribute. So if I tell somebody, let's say, if it's a billion dollars. You know, wouldn't it be worth to shoot this thing in order to bring all these benefits to distribute a billion dollars into the community? And most people who are rational would say, OK, I understand it's it's a fair sacrifice to, to charge it. Uh, some people will say, OK, one hundred thousand dollars is not enough or ten thousand dollars, not enough, whatever. The, there's but there is a price. But somebody might say, OK, well, hold on. No, there should be no price. Some person might say based on just pure ethics just pure animal rights it should not be if if for example doctor they they say to you dr comer they say okay well we're going to go into your community and we want to build a school we just have to kill like three senior citizens in your community and don't worry we're going to give you a billion dollars for each senior citizen that we execute human <laughs> senior citizen right mm -hmm. And would that be acceptable? No, of course not. That would not be acceptable. <laughs> no. So, therefore, if it's not acceptable for human be for human beings uh, to be summarily executed, even though their their death will bring in revenue and help the infrastructure and help the community and bring all sorts of other good, we still just don't do that, and we still would would tolerate the logic. So then some people, animal activists, will just say, therefore, we shouldn't do the same thing. As good as they might recognize that the money that hunting brings is a benefit 
to the local human population and maybe even the animal population. And, you know, elephants benefit from elephants being killed legally and getting that money. In other words, because therefore their, 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 their territory is conserved. Their habitat is conserved. So the, the, the whole groups, the, the elephant, the, the lion pride also benefits, even though they lose one of their members, the whole pride as a whole. So I get that. But what about the guy who's just saying, no, it's just not right for humans. So therefore, it shouldn't be right for animals. Well, I just I disagree with that that view of animals. Humans and animals are are viewed differently. Certainly, legally, it's different, right? The legal system does not recognize those two as the same, and that's because as a society, we've decided that that we don't view it that way. That we not that we treat you know that humans are are different in that way. I think there's also a case to be made with most wildlife I, that that um, how to how to say this that there is very rarely a, a peaceful end of life for a wild animal. You know, that lion is not going to go off to a, a beautiful spot um, on top of a bluff and lay down and die in his sleep. Probably that's just not the way it works. So I don't think you can make a convincing case that being hunted is any more cruel than the other way that animal would go. Um, well, that's certainly true for the herbivores. I mean, herbivores rarely go out sleeping on a nice bluff a lion might because who else is going to attack a lion even an old lion i mean another lion is not going to attack the old senior citizen lion he's just like oh it's all grandpa i'm not going to he's not bothering anybody but a buffalo or any other herbivore is usually not going to meet a peaceful death that's right and so so i don't think there's an there's an ethical argument to be made that the animal is suffering more by being being uh taken by a hunter than any other way. So I, I think it's it's I think it's a difficult argument to make in a rational way that the, the But that they might say, okay, but the same thing if your grandfather or your father has got cancer and is terminal, I still don't have a right to shoot him, even though I'm gonna give him a billion dollars for the right to shoot your father. I'm gonna give your community a billion dollars to shoot your father, even though he's got cancer, he's gonna die in a year anyway. And it still doesn't work, right? No, that still doesn't work. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And I think we, we could probably, we could hopefully, uh, society has, would, would back it up that we view those two situations fundamentally differently. Right. So the, then the question is, is, I mean, there's that movement. I don't know if you've been following it with, uh, I think it's called Meat Free or what's it called? It's basically, it's, it's, it's in vitro meat. Have you heard oh, about this? I, I've heard about that, yes. That, yeah, we're basically growing, growing meat from... Cells, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that may throw a monkey wrench into this whole thing because then you don't necessarily have to even kill an animal in order to eat the meat. So then all of a sudden it's that's going to put some pressure, I imagine, on hunting because people are saying, okay, there's no need to actually, if you want to taste a buffalo, you just buy it from the laboratory that produces it. That sounds scary to me. <laughs> but yeah, I get that, that there. It'd be interesting to see how that plays out. I don't know. Right. I mean, it's coming. I mean, it's uh, already there's, I don't know if you've heard of the Impossible Burger. I, I've heard, yeah, heard the term. Yeah. yeah. So the Impossible Burger is doing very well. It even looks bloody. Uh, it, when you slice into it, it like it, it leaks out. It looks like blood. Um, and it's uh, tastes surprisingly similar to um, a real hamburger. 
And so the, and we're just at the beginning stages of that and how that technology in the next 10, 20 years plays out and what impact that has on hunting will be fascinating. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I agree. I, haven't, I have no idea how that'll, that'll be. That'll be an interesting thing to see. That'll be your next thesis. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> Very good. Well, doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for educating us. And, uh, and if people want to learn a little bit more about what SCI is doing, the foundation, where should they go? Uh, you can, they can go to our, probably the best place to start is our website, uh, safariclubfoundation.org. Um, they've got some good basic information about what we do. It's got some, some summaries of a lot of our major projects that we've done around the world and stuff like that, so that'd be a good place to start. And the website is? Um, it's safariclubfoundation, all one word, dot org. Fantastic. Christopher Comer, pleasure. It's my pleasure. Some really uh, interesting questions. I appreciate it. And that concludes this episode of the WanderLearn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to WanderLearn.com and click on the latest episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. Here's one last reason to remember ftapon. If you like what I do and want to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash, yep, you guessed it, ftapon. That's where you can pick up some sweet rewards for as little as $1 a month. And remember, subscribing to the WanderLearn podcast helps, but downloading each episode helps even more. Please share the podcast, review it, and sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. This show was edited by Rejoice Tapon. The music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon, encouraging you to wander and learn.
Welcome to the One to Learn podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I interview Christopher Comer, who is a director of conservation at the Safari Club International. We talk about all the issues regarding hunting. Uh, this is a complex and difficult subject. And I want to talk about some of the myths that people have about hunting and see if he can dispel some of them. We also talk about why the wildlife in Africa has been declining, or even if it is declining. We talk about what are contributing factors. What is hunting to blame? Is hunting helping, perhaps, as paradoxical as that sounds? And then we end with some of the moral issues and the quandaries, and I think this gets to the meat of the conversation. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and share it and comment about it on wanderlearn.com and support me at uh, 